This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment, and it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research, and I know you'll love it as much as I do. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. All right, James, this is your second time on the podcast, so I'm not going to start with the intro and who you are and how you got started. I'm going to link to the show notes for your original episode, and people can go back and listen to that, but one part uh, about you before we dive into royalties and the whole royalty streaming business model, you do run the inflation-based fund uh, inflation strategy at Horizon Kinetics. Uh, you know, you are, you are PM there, and so... Obviously, the inflation theme has done well. The seems like everybody on Twitter is saying how inflation is going down. It's coming down. It's at three percent. It's going to be sub three percent. Um, but just wanted to get your thoughts on how that inflation thematic has played out in the fund and how you think it'll play out. Let's say over the next twelve to eighteen months. Yeah. Again, uh, thanks for having me back. And when I was first on, I think everybody was arguing that inflation was transitory, and they were wrong. And I think that everyone's going to be similarly wrong here where they think that inflation is gone. But it's it's pretty wild. If you look at markets, so if you look at CPI break-evens, if you look at Eurodollar futures, basically everybody is betting on us going back to the 2019 world. So low inflation, low rates, and probably low real growth and that's going to be conducive to another kind of long duration type of rally and tech and what have you and i would argue that the probability of that happening is close i wouldn't say zero or close to zero but incredibly small because the structural factors that have changed in the world uh and the economy are just so profound but also the the preconditions to that pre-2019 world of rising profit margins, low inflation, and low rates are probably not repeatable and changing. So if you think about the globalization trends of the 90s and 2000s, um, that mobilized a lot of labor and resources. Um, that was disinflationary. And now we're competing with the non-OECD world for that labor and those resources. By the way, we've exploited a lot of the cheapest resources, so it's, we don't even have that same resource availability. We also had a what I'll call a productivity step function, where the advent of the internet becoming a business application around 2000 was a tailwind to about 300 basis points of productivity gains. So if you look at all of that and think about is that repeatable in the post 20 in the post pandemic world when we are reshoring supply chains we have not invested in raw materials 
we are competing for labor with non-OECD countries. We can't even get labor to work effectively domestically and productivity can't budge. So I would argue based on all of that, that we're going to be in an environment of higher, albeit volatile inflation and higher, albeit volatile rates. And the nuance is to really understand where the cyclical inflation drivers are and where the structural inflation drivers are. So I'm gonna ask you how to identify and how to track the cyclical versus secular inflation drivers. But before that, the narrative around the profit margins and you know businesses not having the same high profit margins we've enjoyed over the last decade, the counter to that is, well, AI is going to replace a lot of jobs and companies are going to cut workforces. <laughs> Sorry if you heard the massive Blue Angel fighter yeah. jet flying over my house. But um, that is that is the prevailing argument against, let's say, you know, hey, profit margins are coming down. It's, oh, look, I'm IBM. I'm General Electric. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm all these companies. I'm cutting 55,000 jobs because of AI. Like, how do you... Like, what is your response to that? And is that an overblown benefit you, you would think of, of AI and companies going forward? I think it's overestimated. I also think that the societal backlash where, where we really have the friction in the labor market is the mild, call it unskilled or lightly skilled labor. So assembly lines, delivery drivers, and uh, you know, retail service, and there's not a lot of that that AI can do. Um, you also have kind of on the other barbell, the highly skilled labor. Um, you know, fortunately, I guess for us, at least for the time being, ChatGBT is very bad at picking stocks and tends to lose a lot of money. So kind of where is that friction kind of in that middle management area? And I'm not really sure how much room there is for margin there, uh, especially when your overall supply chain is stressed uh, and again, look at the political landscape in the U.S. and Europe. If you're laying off a bunch of middle management and mass for AI, if we can even do it, um, I think there's going to be a political backlash. But again, going back to AI, um, the things that would need to be automated to really have these huge changes. So you know, I don't think we're any remotely close to having um, full self-driving. Um, just the amount of things that you need for that to take place and then also to apply that to trucking, to apply that to rails, to apply that to shipping and then, you know, going further upstream when you go into mining and energy extraction. I think that there's definitely a lot of fluff that can be cut, but, you know, I guess the added expense would be if you really do remove that much kind of middle to middle, upper middle income earners, what does that then do to the economy and then how does that help your profits? So, I think it's kind of a circular argument and um, remains to be seen exactly what it's going to do. But um, ultimately, we're going to do with something with all these people if they really are getting laid off. Yeah, no, it's just a, it's a fascinating question to wonder if the benefits of AI overcome, like you said, the supply chain issues, the fact that costs are rising everywhere in the real world economy. Um, and it'll 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 be a fun thought experiment to kind of play out. But I, I also want to touch on you mentioned secular versus cyclical inflation. How do you define kind of the two of those? And then and then how do you track um, you know the trend of secular versus cyclical inflation over time? Yeah, I mean cyclical are things where it was pretty obvious that there was a demand and or supply shock. So a great example would be capital goods. So washers and dryers and windows and pools. Um, everybody had a bunch of money and so there's demand and they're stuck at home, there's demand. Supply side factories are closed, you can't get raw materials, boom, you have this huge surge in these prices. There was no structural limitation to making more washers and dryers and more pool products and aluminum siding. So it was pretty clear that that was going to correct, whether it was going to be supply was going to respond or demand was going to respond, and there was going to be a new equilibrium. The structural inflation drivers are things where there's not an obvious or maybe not a demand or supply response whatsoever, but there's very inelastic um, demand. 
So I've listened to a lot of your podcasts where you've talked about copper. And yes, there's some cyclicality, economic cyclicality to copper demand. I mean, everybody thinks of it as the most economically sensitive um, commodity. But then when you look at the demand resilience from all of the electrification, whether it's power generation, power transmission, renewables, the copper intensity of EVs, there's not only sustainability to demand, but there's also huge secular growth. But then the bigger part is when you look at the supply side, if we wanted to respond, it would have taken us 15 years to do it for a greenfield mine uh, and nobody's doing it. Um, you need the capital, you need the permits. I mean, even in a wildly optimistic scenario, you need a decade to even theoretically bring on this supply and the dollars just aren't, aren't there. I can make similar similar arguments in certain energy markets, certain ag markets, um, certain crop markets. So those are things that are going to be a lot more deeply ingrained. And those are things that I, we think are going to be structural drivers of inflation that are going to keep uh, CPI and PPI numbers high. Again, volatile, but high. Yeah. And I mean, you're seeing this and I don't want to make this too much of a copper podcast because we're going to dive into royalties and that's really where we're going to spend all of our time. But I wrote a thread on the top 10 largest copper producers and the interesting uh, kind of theme that I found was if you look at the cash costs. So, you know, the all in sustaining cost to extract a pound of copper out of the ground across the board, it was up like 30 percent. And a lot of that just came from the fact that they're declining ore grades, so you needed to move more rock to get the same equivalent pounds of copper. But also diesel costs were up, labor costs were up, volumes were down because, again, declining ore grades. And um, you just had this structural 30% increase in the cost of, the, of them doing business. And that's why, on one hand, I see these people tweet, you know, hey, oh, inflation's at 3%, inflation's trending down, trending down. But then I look and I'm like, the stuff, the costs for things that society needs to function and to grow, and if they want to have a shot at electrifying the world, like the cost to do that and to extract that metal is rising 30%. And so there's this massive disconnect between real world inflation and what I would call nominal inflation. And I just don't think more, I, I think more people should be paying attention to the real world inflation economics and how that's impacting things. Because the higher inflation you see for things like cash costs for mines or for oil and gas, the higher the commodity price needed to make that extraction profitable and worth it, which is going to send prices higher. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that those are variables that are those types of things are much more difficult for policymakers to control. And so that's why you strip them out of certain measures of CPI. But ultimately, I see a world where we are going to implicitly, we're not going to explicitly accept three, four, five percent inflation because that, that would never work. But implicitly, I think they're going to tolerate higher inflation, particularly around these types of variables that central banks really can't control. Yeah, and it's almost like, and again, this is probably, you know, uh, hyperbole, but I'm doing it to make a point. But when you when you back out a lot of what I call real world inflation drivers, and you say, oh, this is our kind of core inflation, it's like a company reporting adjusted EBITDA with OPEX added back in. It's like, oh, this is our profits if we add back in all of our OPEX. <laughs> <laughs> we're, yeah. we're 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 wildly profitable. It's you know WeWork's community adjusted EBITDA all over again. All right, let's switch into the royalties business model after getting you know kind of the inflation um, thought and kind of narrative narrative out of the way. This is a very timely uh, podcast because you emailed me and I just finished researching a a, a precious metals uh, royalty business and so royalties and streaming and that whole business model has been on the top of my mind. And so I want you to walk me through your paper on mineral interests, royalties, and how they play a role in both the energy markets and the precious metal markets. And we can just start with just the background. Like what is a royalty structure? What is a royalty company? 
Sure. And so just to you know transition from the inflation talk into royalties, royalties are the biggest component of our inflation beneficiaries fund. And I think they are categorically the best long-term investment for a higher inflation, higher volatility world. We can probably walk through that when we kind of go through the businesses, the valuations and the merits. But at the simplest level, a royalty is a purely financial interest in the production of a mine, of a certain area of land, of a well, of an acre. And so you, in the purest form of a royalty, you are participating at the asset level, but also at the revenue level. So if a oil rig is generating $150 million of cash flow or revenue, but losing $150 million of cash flow, your royalty is based on that 150 of revenue. So you, in that sense, you're not really subject to operating or break-even costs in so much as the operator is still incentivized to produce. The other great variable about having this type of revenue and asset level exposure is that you do not participate in CapEx. So not only do you not participate in the operating expenses, if the person or company that is exploiting your resource decides to spend hundreds of millions, billions of dollars to grow that asset, you participate precisely zero dollars in that. So you have a pure, um, basically a double call option is how I like to explain it. One, you have a call option on the optionality of the price of the underlying commodity. Also, you have an underlying free call option on the level of production. And so if both of those variables work in your favor, you can have this very asymmetric relationship in your revenue growth. But then the beauty of it is your cost structure is basically flat. Some of these companies that have billions of dollars of royalties um, might have a handful of employees, one office, and quite literally 90% operating margins and fully taxed in the US net profits of about 70%. And so that really adds a huge quality overlay to the business model in industries which typically have really poor business models and really poor returns on invested capital, really low returns on uh, and assets. So how did this royalty model start? Um, I know Pierre Lassonde is kind of the godfather of the royalty business model, but explain you know, when it, when it started, because it's not necessarily a super old concept, at least in terms of royalties on precious metals and things like that. Yeah, I mean, so again, if in the paper, I go through the history to in, in greater detail, and we'll throw it in the show notes if people would like to, to read the paper. But historically, the concept of royalties really goes back to governments, where governments, particularly in the United Kingdom and England, wanted to have a ownership in mines. But then they also realized that they can't just expropriate and operate every single mine. So they said, look, you can mine this, but the crown has a ownership in production. And so in that case, maybe it made sense for the King of England to take physical delivery of copper or silver or gold. But it was effectively a royalty where it said, look, you can operate under his majesty's sovereignty if you deliver 30% of all production from your mind to the king. That was kind of the baseline. I think that the next iteration was um, in energy. Um, so before, uh, I'll get into Lasan and Shulik in a moment, with energy leases, in many cases, the owner of the land, uh, in some cases, the owner of the land is one and the same as the minerals, which is just a, a basic fee simple interest. In some cases, the surface estate can be removed from the mineral estate. But in many cases, you might want to maintain ownership and a degree of control over your minerals um, without selling that interest. So in that case, you would lease your land to an operator for, let's say, an upfront payment per acre. But then on the back end, you would get a proportion of all production. So let's say 20, 25 percent of all oil and gas produced on your land. 
And that was what really sparked the conversation between Seymour Schulich and Pierre Lassonde, where they were aware of royalties in the energy space. And again, this was not financialized. There were, this is in the early 80s, there were very few non private, individually or government owned royalties. But they noticed all of the problems in gold and gold mining and precious metal mining and said, hey, why doesn't this exist in precious metals? So lo and behold, they said, well, we, we think we could actually do that. And the first transaction that they did in 1986 at Franco Nevada Mining, they provided a $2 million upfront payment for the gold strike mine in Nevada and the Carlin trend. Um, when they first gave that uh, payment, it was for about a 500,000 ounce resource. Um, shortly thereafter, American Barrick bought that mine uh, and invested hundreds of millions of dollars over the next couple of years. Ultimately, it became a 50 million dollar, excuse me, a 50 million ounce resource. Now, since that original $2 million investment in 1986, it has already cash flowed Franco over a billion dollars of revenue. Uh, they think that there's at least another decade of revenue uh, and counting right now, which is uh, still about 25, 30 million dollars a year at current prices. Wow. And so that was really just the beginning of the new, I'd say, financialization of precious metal royalties as a business class. But you can imagine seeing a success story like that, how that would both springboard the success of Franco Nevada, but then also attract uh, a lot of imitators in precious metals and then also ancillary industries. Um, I would kind of just, as a side, that is a pure royalty where Franco earns a net smelter return. So basically the net of the gold production in that mine, uh, a, a fixed percentage based. The next iteration came with uh, Wheaton Precious Metals. Uh, back then it was uh, Wheaton Mining, where they introduced something called a streaming agreement. So streams are often, I wouldn't say confused, but often compared to um, royalties in that they do have a lot of similar functions to a royalty, but with a stream, there's an agreed upon payment for production. So let's go with a royalty. So for Gold Strike, Franco paid $2 million for basically a perpetual percentage of all of the gold produced in that mine. A stream might have been, okay, I'll give you $100,000 up front, and then I will pay you 20% of the value of all of the gold in your mine forever. So the reason that this works well for both sides is that the miner has continual cash injections as opposed to just having a cash bleed in perpetuity after that original contract is signed. But it also works for the streamer because the streamer still has a basically extremely accretive, low cost royalty-esque type of cash flow stream. So after uh, Wheaton really revolutionized that market, which was actually one of their own mines, the San Dimas mine in Mexico, um, that basically started the dominance of streaming contracts, where in many cases, streaming is a bit more advantageous to the miner. But both of those really revolutionized royalties, which I'll refer to all contracts as royalties. Um, Energy is a lot more idiosyncratic, and so are other markets, whether it's iron or copper, but those are generally asset level based, and you didn't really see the financialization of energy royalties, at least at scale until about a decade ago, um, where you're now seeing very active markets in private and public buyers and you know, M&A within both sides. But um, that's kind of the, the the background on both and kind of seeing how both industries have kind of evolved over the years. If I'm a mining executive CEO and I I basically have three financing financing options. I can do a royalty, I can issue shares, or I can get debt at whatever the cost of capital is. If I'm sitting in that seat trying to decide between which to use again as as the operator of the mine why should i 
choose the royalty over the two other options? So the royalty will generally be your high cost of capital, but you're getting a lot in return for that high cost of capital. So issuing equity, you are directly diluting your shareholders. And once you dilute, that's really a permanent dilution. The royalty, you know, you're monetizing a portion of the asset, but there's no really ongoing dilution. Debt, you have the issues of ongoing cash interest burden and then ultimately a maturity. So if you have issues with the production of your mine or starting up your mine or capital markets are miserable and you have to roll over your debt at, an, at a disadvantageous time, that can be a really big problem for you. The royalty provides perpetual financing where you never have to spend another dollar on servicing that if you want to look at it as debt or equity. So a great example would be if you have a new mine that requires, is going to take some time to start up, you don't want to have cash interest bearing paper on that mine. Um, if you have some uncertainty about a production profile, you don't necessarily want to have debt that you roll over. But also, if you think that these are incredible assets, you don't want to dilute yourself and your equity holders by issuing stock, especially if your stock price does not really reflect the prospects of that mine. Hmm. So again, hard stop, royalty financing tends to be the high cost of capital, but in many cases, it's mutually beneficial and there's a great reason to use it. Are there any mining companies you know, between producers, we'll call them senior, junior, middle, middle of the road producers or explorers that the streaming and royalty, uh, you know, cost of capital or, or that funding route just isn't right for them. Like I would assume that if I'm a senior producer, like a Southern Copper or a Glencore, I can go to the debt markets and get pretty attractive debt and to kind of service my financing costs. But the other assumption is if I'm a junior miner, a junior explorer, I'm not getting debt at anything less than 15% plus. Yeah, so you actually just brought up the greatest reason for royalties to exist, which I kind of skipped over there, which is let's say you are First Quantum or Southern or any of these other giant Rio operators and you're operating a massive Panamanian or Chilean copper mine, you're right. You have zero interest and under almost no circumstances will you put a royalty on your copper mine. But copper mines tend to have a significant byproduct of gold and silver. Uh, zinc mines have a lot of byproduct also of silver. So now again, sitting in that CEO seat of First Quantum, your shareholders are acutely focused on your copper and they don't care. They might even penalize you for the variability in your earnings from your gold and your silver. So if you have a billion, two billion, five billion dollar mine expansion, it's in your best interest to call up Franco Nevada, to call up Wheaton Precious and say, hey, why don't you throw a stream or a royalty on my byproduct? I don't even want this stuff, but it's coming out of the mine anyway. Now you're getting incredibly attractive financing, no cash interest, no dilution on a byproduct of your production that you don't even care about. So in that case, it's literally a win-win-win. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's that's one of the things that I realized when when studying the streaming is you have these byproducts. That again, right? Because if 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 you're a copper miner, and that's your mo, you don't want to. I mean, there's there there's costs involved both on the labor, equipment, and facilities of 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 smelting that and refining that and getting that into a usable, sellable product. Whereas if you have one of these one of these streaming companies, they could say, "Hey, we'll take the silver off your hands, and we'll pay you for it." That way it doesn't just become this cost center for you. You can actually use it as a source of, of zero, you know, very, very low cost financing. Um, now, if we, if we kind of keep going down that rabbit hole, um, you know, in, in just terms of questions to ask, one of the biggest questions that I had is, okay, you mentioned 
in I think the Franco Nevada example that um, you know Barrick, I think it was Barrick Mining at the time. I, I know I know they've changed names, but Barrick Mining bought the mine that uh, Franco Nevada was you know financing through 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 the royalty. At what point, if I'm an acquiring mining company, do I look at a streaming a royalty contract and say, you know what, we're big enough now where we don't need this? Like, can't I just get out of that? Like, why do I have to keep sending royalty payments to, let's say, a Franco Nevada that bought it in 1986 and now it's 2006 and you know, Barrick's cash flowing billions of dollars and doesn't need it? Yeah, I mean, that is generally these royalties and streams are a senior claim on the asset. And so they could actually potentially even prevent you from working that mine because the royalties and the streams are at the asset level, which actually kind of supersede the miners interest. And there's mm -hmm. actually just a recent case with first quantum and Panama where they actually had to settle with the government for a higher crown royalty, which did not impact the, uh, the underlying uh, Franco royalty. So it shows you the strength of the royalty. Also with royalties, the royalty supersedes a bankruptcy. Um, if, it's a, if it's kind of a senior royalty like this, there's some nuance in weaker royalties, but in most cases, let's say a mine goes bankrupt and a junior collapses and then Glencore picks it up, that royalty remains on that mine. Now, Glencore could try to hold your feet to the fire and negotiate and say, look, we're not gonna produce, but in many cases, these are perpetual and sometimes you can negotiate a, a prearranged uh, buyback. In some cases, they are limited to a certain term. In some cases, they are limited to a certain amount of production. But if those are not in the original contract, these are extremely strong claims and there's virtually nothing that the miners can do other than threaten to just close the mine where you know, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. No, that makes sense. And then the question I guess that, that, that I have is what's the probability that these relationships between the miners and the streamers and royalty companies becomes um you know abrasive or very very combative right because if i'm if i'm the royalty company and i say well you know guess what you guys can't get rid of us unless you close down and i'm a miner that's seeing these royalties go out the door and i know i don't need them i <laughs> immediately i would feel resentful and i would hate the relationship and so do you do you find that you know even going back if there's case studies where these relationships just end very poorly or if there's any kind of hostility between between parties yeah, I mean, generally, you know, it's not a great relationship where typically the best royalties, you're signing that contract as a royalty financing provider uh, when conditions are great and terms are great for you. And so, you know, but you're providing the operator with liquidity potentially to get through a liquidity crisis. And so for them to then not appreciate that you got them through that period is a bit short-sighted. And there's, there's examples of that. And you know, you can always see examples in Texas or North Dakota where uh, production companies try to underreport, and then there's lawsuits because everything has to get reconciled. And that obviously gets contentious as well. Um, there's also situations where there's kind of inherited old legacy royalties where the operator doesn't like it, but you know, it's the asset that you were, that you inherited. So a great example would be the North Shore Mine in Minnesota. It's a uh, large, extremely high quality iron ore mine. Um, it is. It goes back to the 1980s. It's been through several iterations of ownership. Currently, it's operated by Cliffs, which is the new iteration of Cleveland Cliffs. Um, it's a scaling royalty whereby the operator is not overly burdened when production level and prices are low. Um, and then it scales up. So when production levels and prices are very high, uh, the company's presumably doing very well and the royalty does very well. The CEO of Cliffs does not like that arrangement. And so he's doing exactly what you alluded to. He's kind of stomping his feet and saying, well, I'm going to close my mind. But again, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face because 
that mine is, and a lot of these companies, this is the lifeblood of your organization. So um, in most cases, I think that there's just like, you don't like, you don't like paying your mortgage. It's like, oh, that bank or your landlord, like, ah, oh, my landlord has jacked up my rent or, you know, my floating rate mortgage just went up. Like, I don't like paying it, but I also like living in my house. So I'm going to keep paying it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. I want to shift to actually underwriting and the due diligence process on these mining or these, you know, precious, precious metal royalty companies. How do you decide like what is what is a tier one high quality royalty company? What's a what's a bad low quality royalty company? And um how do you how do you kind of underwrite these things with the multiples and you know dividend yields for some of these? Because I know we'll touch on the fact that the market loves assigning high multiples to these royalty businesses, which is one of the benefits of 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 the asset class. Yes, yeah, so in terms of looking at objective business level figures, um, especially in precious metals, you really have to focus on jurisdiction. So you really like obviously North America, Canada, Mexico, and then also South and Central America. They generally have fairly strong um, legal systems. They also, which goes hand in hand with that, is they generally have world-class operators. So if you can't trust the domicile of the mine uh, and you can't trust the quality and integrity of the operator, I think then you have a lot of problems and you need to assign a much higher discount rate. I would say something else that's really important that also gets overlooked a lot is I like to look at that, call it measured, indicated and inferred component. So all of the sell side and basically all of everyone focuses on is the producing assets. So those 2P reserves. But the beauty, especially of copper mines where you're getting gold and silver byproduct is that a good gold mine might be eight, 10, 12 years um, of reserve life. A good copper mine could be 70, but you can't book any of that until you're actually working and producing in that specific area. So that tail is what has created such tremendous value for companies like Franco Nevada, for companies like Royal Gold. So I want to see good jurisdiction, good operators, but then also a long tail where even if you look at their reserves, I mean, you've got, call it 30 years of, of uh, 2P plus measured and indicated, not including inferred for the Francos of the world. And you know, that's multiples above your miners. So you really want to leverage the fact that you have that longer tail and optionality. Because again, go back to that comment about having those two call options. You have a call option on price and you have a call option on volume. So in obviously time value of money, that tail is not worth as much money. But also if you kind of have a view of the future like we do, I want to make sure that we have that. And so I think that gets lost when you look at kind of PNAVs and price to free cash flow or price to cash flow for the precious metal royalty space and why a lot of people just kind of balk at price today and not understand the amount of value that this business model creates. Because also the amount of required reinvestment when you have that type of reserve life and when you have that type of organic growth profile that somebody else is funding on their dime is a really powerful dynamic, especially in a world where there's inflation. So operating costs are going up, break-even costs are going up, financing costs are going up, plus reserve quality and reserve grades are going down. So having these high quality, long duration incumbent assets, I think is where most of the value in the royalty world is today. It's just really optimizing that and buying it right. So then if it's not like a price to free cash flow or a price to earnings ratio, is there some sort of metric you use to compare, quickly compare, let's say, you know, a, a Wheaton versus a Franco Nevada versus a Royal Gold, and then peeling another layer back? Because all, all three of those are, are very, very large royalty companies. 
do you look at kind of the medium size and then the small size? And then what are the specific risks as you as you go lower down in terms of just the deal volume that they can get? Yeah, so you have in the larger companies, you tend to have far larger mines, far larger portfolios, a bit more diversification, more reserves. Um, and because of that, you tend to trade at a pretty substantial premium. So the majors, let's, let's, let's just use Franco and Wheaton, for example, they're trading around, call it 22 times cash flow per share uh, this year. And so, you know, basically if you, if you use, let's assume we stay around $2,000 an ounce for the rest of the year, uh, you strip out your depreciation, your non-cash costs, you're around that. Um, you know, for some of the juniors, you know, triple flag, a Cisco, Metalla, you know, you could be half that. And so where do you reconcile that? I think one is there's a huge premium in the publics for that liquidity. So big shareholder bases in Canada for these, for the, for the precious metal royalties. Um, energy is a bit more of a mixed bag, but in, in, in precious metals in particular, you can't go in as you know Toronto Dominion or RBC and put 500 million bucks to work in these juniors. And so there's also index inclusion. So it's kind of, I think that the larger names are traded probably around correctly. The smaller names are extremely cheap, but the problem is you just can't get critical mass. And you know, this actually brings up a good problem it's kind of this this dilemma that these smaller names have is that they all see that we need to get bigger because we need liquidity. If we get liquidity, we get a better equity multiple. If we get a better equity multiple, we can be more accretive on our acquisitions. It's kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy. So I've seen on in both sides, both precious metals and energy, CEOs just be willing to grow at the sake of growth because they're just so obsessed with hitting critical mass and they make huge mistakes. Hmm. I won't name names, but there's a huge one in, in precious metals that, that is, you know, pretty well known. Um, but again, I think that it really comes down to you and your time frame because the big question for years has been, when do the big companies consolidate these smaller names? Cause there's right. this big pool of smaller names that are just too cheap. And you could never acquire their portfolios in the private market for anything close to what they're trading for. Hmm. But if I'm a shareholder or management of one of the smaller companies, I don't want to give away my company. So I don't know if there's a bid ask spread or conversations have taken place, but it's an interesting dynamic, but it honestly does make sense when you do look at the numbers. So is it like if I'm one of these larger, let's say I'm a Wheaton and I'm looking at these mid small royalty businesses do i look at it as okay what price am i paying per let's say gold equivalent ounce right because that's 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 a popular metric a geo yep. so taking the market cap of one of these small royalty companies and the public markets are valuing it at a dollar a geo and i know in private markets those those same you know those same ounces are going for three to four dollars is that is that how they're thinking about it and is that how you're thinking about it in terms of ranking these things it's tricky. So generally, yes, you're saying, okay, what can I get for the same dollar equivalent, public or private? The problem of being a public company is you're always very sensitive to, is this accretive on a cash flow and a NAV basis? I mean, you never want to be that management that announces a non-accretive transaction. But the reason it's not as simple as just looking at dollar per GEO is that with royalties and all financial assets, the time value of when those GEOs hit yeah. is just the, the variability of timing is just so important. So to the extent that there's, you know, a handful of pod shop and short-term energy guys that are still and, and ladies looking at royalties, those short-term hedge fund analysts looking at the royalty space and energy, they're obsessively tracking where the drills are. Because the sooner those royalties get drilled, you pull forward so much NPV 
that in their models, that's a huge driver on value. And it's the same way. If you're a corporate CEO, I hope that you're more concerned with NAV, not just, you know, massaging a, you know, non-GAAP accretive transaction. So you also want, you want to look at how quickly and how confident am I that I'm going to get those GEOs? And then also where's the growth rate? So growth rate, uh, discount rate, and then kind of it's all basically an iteration of an NPV calculation. So then is it is it kind of safe to assume that royalty companies with a higher proportion of producing assets versus non-producing assets would be much more attractive for a senior because you've got the producing that's come, those ounces are coming out of the ground today versus like you said, that right tail of non-producing that may come out in the future, but you don't know and you have to discount that by, you know, whatever, whatever percentage based on geology yep. and geography. Absolutely. And same thing with private equity players and certain other privates where they really want that cash flow today. There's a huge impetus to chase that drill bit or chase that mine shovel and really get that front loaded cash flow. And that's why we think we can actually find a lot of value by being patient. And we actually look for lower developed ratios. Hmm. Um, so, you know, and again, with Franco about call it 50% of their reserve, more than 50% of their reserves are not 2P and not producing. But then if you NPV it, about 90% of their NAV is producing, but then and only 10% is, is um, non-producing. But then if you actually take a step out and look at the overall reserve profile, probably over 60% of reserves, maybe 70 is in that non. So it just shows you how sensitive yeah. um, everything is to when things get developed. But we love assets like that because there's so much more optionality on the back end. So in energy names like Texas Pacific and Prairie Sky in Canada, they have very low development ratios relative to their overall inventory. And so that might make them look like they're optically not as profitable or more expensive than peers that have very high production ratios and very high development ratios. But what you need to consider is if you're 50% developed and you have eight years of drilling left, you better be spending to replace all of that production every year the same way as if you were an EMP, unless you're really in kind of cash flow harvesting mode. So I think that's the biggest nuance in royalties is that duration of the back end where it can really work in your favor. But then also, I think what everyone does get is that having this high profit margin, having the low capital intensity, it helps you so much on the downside when the cycle does kind of come down, but then also you have that full leverage of both of your call options when you come back to the upside. Yeah, and you brought up the term, you know, the 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 whole counter cyclicality aspect of the streaming and royalty companies, and you mentioned it in in your in your paper. And I'm just gonna kind of read read a portion here. It says, "quote Franco Nevada allocated." over 1.8 billion between 2014 and 2016 after gold fell from its cycle high over 1800 an ounce in 2011 to less than 1100 an ounce in late 2015 and during that period the company secured streams on world class assets including candelaria antamina and antipaki and just expand on the counter cyclicality aspect of it and 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 why that's so important if you want to express your bullish PM's theme through something like a royalty business? Yeah. So when prices are high and cost of capital is low and everything is great, it is the worst of times to be a royalty company because you can't allocate capital. Deals are very tightly bid if they can be found at all. Um, and so it's really not a great time to be out there adding to your portfolio. That's a pro-cyclical market. The counter-cyclical market is that, again, in that example, when everybody was investing like 1,800 an ounce was the new normal, when we fall back down to 1,100 an ounce and capital markets freeze up, now everyone's desperate and they really want financing. So Franco was able to go out and secure royalties on world-class assets that might not have been available if 
copper prices were high and capital markets were accommodative. So even though it was uncomfortable to be investing in the mineral space from a macro basis because things were falling apart, you were actually accruing the most one of the most valuable situations in the history of Franklin, Nevada, because they were able to put all of that capital to work counter cyclically at exactly the right time. The other variable is that because they don't necessarily have a true break even, um, they were basically cash flow positive. And Franco and most of the most royalties, particularly in precious metals, run net cash. They might draw down on a revolver just to close a transaction. But so you have net very high profit margins. You're still generating free cash flow and you don't have to worry about debt. Copper miners, gold miners, not only do you have to worry about your all in sustaining cost, then you have to worry about your debt uh, and all of your other kind of cost overhangs. And so operationally, Franco's hanging in there just fine while they're allocating capital really aggressively. And so that's why kind of over full cycles, you really benefit from this cyclical volatility. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I mean, the, the the cost structure of royalty businesses is probably one of the best in any company. Um, and again, maybe maybe there's a company out there that's 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 more attractive. But you can run like, for instance, Franco Nevada, like you could run that entire company in like a six bedroom mansion. Yeah. My, my like yeah. Yeah. Our, our our director of research, Steve Bregman, he did a study. I think it was in the past decade. If you were to have compared Franco, Wheaton, Texas Pacific, Prairie Sky, and look at their operating margins, they would have all ranked in the top five of all S&P 500 constituents, I think in all 10 of those years. Now, there were some outliers where there were some accounting things, but the other names that were in there were financial exchanges and Visa and MasterCard. So what's the commonality here? They're basically toll booth business models that are just wildly profitable. And royalties, actually, if you look at revenue on a per share or, or excuse me, per employee basis, you know, put those other companies to shame. Oh, it's 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 crazy. It's like hundreds and hundreds of millions per employee. Um, yeah. And a lot of these a lot of these companies, like you said, have less than 30 to 40 employees. Um, and even there, I bet you you could trim and get <laughs> like 500 million per, per, per employee in your revenue. But that. That brings me to this question of fund flows, and we can kind of wrap it up here around fund flows because all of these things make sense to me, right? Obviously, I'm biased. I'm bullish precious metals. I'm bullish the inflation narrative. Um, you know, I've 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 studied uh, these 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 companies and written and written about them. But the biggest question is, none of that really matters unless fund flows enter the space and other people realize that and other people you know, drive drive the price up, and. You mentioned that these companies like Wheaton, uh, uh, what's what's the other one? Wheaton, there's Franco Nevada. They rank up there with the visas, with the MasterCards. And so, if I'm looking at over the next twelve to eighteen months, or you know, next next three to five years, I'm a big PM at some huge family office. I need to allocate money, or I'm somebody at BlackRock that needs to allocate money, um, and I want exposure to the precious metal theme. Logically these royalty businesses seem like the perfect vehicle for really big money to allocate to a to that specific thematic yeah i agree i think if you understand that you do have some downside protection here in the strength of the business model in the profit margins and then in the long tail of production on the other side it's interesting. So if you look at past cycles, and it's really hard to use historical data because there's not really a lot of history where there was this bifurcation of majors and middle market and juniors in the royalty space. But if you look at gold miners to be kind of a, a proxy, it tends to be when the cycle really gets going. And so this cycle hasn't gotten going at all. We're barely above peak gold in 2011. So that I, I wouldn't 
I would take exception with people that say this is kind of a gold bull market. I think that, you know, we're probably nearer the beginning than the middle or certainly the end. But probably through the first half, if not longer, of these cycles, the larger liquid names run first. So that would mean the bigger liquid miners would run ahead of the smaller. And that's because that's where liquidity goes. And so big liquidity chases the bigger names. Maybe there's a bit more quality, a bit more investor recognition. And then as the cycle really gets going and people are convinced that it's not necessarily going to roll over or mean revert, that's when you start to see money kind of trickle down into the mids and the juniors. But I do think, I think that there's a lot of reasons without getting into kind of macro arguments for gold, but there's a lot of reasons to think, hey, I want to express a three, five, seven year opinion on energy or on precious metals or on iron ore. I'm not really convinced what's going to happen with this recession. When's it going to be? How severe is it going to be? What is consumption going to look like? I just can't go out there and buy a miner today. And maybe it's not even in my mandate to buy futures. The way to kind of do it on a good risk adjusted basis would be do the work on the royalty companies, understand the valuation, kind of understand the multiple ways to win. And that's where I really think you're going to ultimately see the fund flows. And if energy is any ind indication where you've seen this dynamic where, you know, the majors have kind of gotten a bid, but then you've seen, you know, huge spreads with the, the juniors in Canada. It's crazy how cheap some of these juniors are. But I think that the next five years, people aren't really going to believe that the new cycle has started again yet across asset classes. And so that's going to favor, again, the Franco, the Wheaton, maybe Royal Gold, and then kind of an energy, the bigger names, the Viper, Texas Pacific, uh, Prairie Sky, et cetera. And I think what's important to remember is, again, the business quality, right? So there's a ton of torque in buying miners because you, know, you basically have this fixed cost. And if the commodity goes up and to the right, you're going to make a ton of money. And so there's so much torque to the underlying price. But if you're a royalty company, you have the added advantage of consistently higher cash flows and a consistently higher multiple paid by the market. And what you'll find is that over cycles, like you'll see this with Franco Nevada, you'll see this with Wheaton, these royalty businesses can trade comfortably at over 40 times cash flow. And that's just where they sit in 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 these bull markets for commodities and PMs. And so it's not unreasonable to look at something that has a 25 times cash flow multiple. And again, like I, I know how this sounds because when it comes out of my mouth, it's like, oh, I'm going back to 2020, 2021, where like multiples don't matter. But if you look at the cycle multiples, it it is it is very common for investors to drive up these things to 40, 45 times cash flow, no problem. And part, part of that is not irrational because in a bull market, commodity prices are going up, which means a lot more of your measured, indicated, and inferred resources in the money. So if you're saying, A, there's a higher probability that it's going to get extracted, but then B, because it's in the money, there's a higher probability you can pull forward the uh, mine uh, schedule for that. Then based on that, you know, there is, it's not a linear relationship between gold prices because higher gold does promote higher production and you, that's all free leverage to you in a royalty because you're not paying for that. So there is a rational component to that. Um, you know, obviously there's limits, but you know, yeah. higher prices 100% actually do increase the navs of royalties with that type of portfolio optionality. Yeah, and I'm not, you know, obviously all this is educational. I'm not saying that you need to underwrite these companies at 40 or expect them to have an exit multiple at 40. Um, more, more so just saying when you see something at 20 times, don't think to yourself that that's crazy expensive. I think that's the more important lesson is not to say, oh, you can exit these things. Like you can put your 40x at your, at your exit multiple year five. It's like, no, just, just know that 20 times isn't what it looks like for these types of businesses. Exactly. And, you know, when you juxtapose that against 
a capital intensive miner with low profit margins, with debt, with very significant reinvestment risk. There's no argument that these things should not trade at a massive premium to miners. Um, but I think, you know, look at a look at real estate cap rates. So, you know, a, a cap rate on a stabilized property of three or four, um, you know, I would argue maybe these things have better and more attractive cash flow generation than, you know, a fully leased apartment property that's trading at a four or a five cap where, you know, 20 times cash flow is completely in line with that real estate comp. And, you know, quite frankly, I'd rather own, you know, high single digit production growth with that call option on metal prices on the royalty. So, you know, a, a client of ours actually mentioned, hey, this looks a lot like collecting rent as a landlord. Yes. And, you know, funny enough, he actually just did a big 1031 exchange where he was able to swap out of a shopping complex and put it all into royalties with no tax base because they're both considered real property for a 1031. Really? I did not so know he, that. Yeah. So he swapped out of a four cap on a shopping center into a energy royalty portfolio that we think could do 17 or 20 with absolutely no tax, with absolutely no tax repercussions. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I would love to. I would love to know and learn more about what's going on in the private royalty market, because what I see now is a lot, a lot, a lot of public stuff. But I would be very fascinated to see people that are doing this in the private space, um, because again, a shorthand, right? For 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 a lot of these royalty businesses, most of them, if not all of them, pay some sort of dividend, um, and a good a good shorthand is like, look, whenever these dividend yields hit like five percent, like start like really start sharpening your pencil because on a run rate basis, most of these royalty companies trade at dividend yields between like one to one and a half to 2%. And so if they're, you know, if the stock's down and you're getting a yield of five, five and a half, um, that's a, that's a great entry point to start really doing some research to say, okay, like, is this thing actually legit? Is this just price action? Because if it's, if it's a legitimate royalty company, that business will re-rate back to a two, uh, two percent yield. Yeah, and it's funny you mention the private market because, particularly in energy, it's the private market's a lot deeper and more robust in energy because it's you know you can buy one acre or one section with energy royalties. It's pretty hard to buy one mine as an individual or a family office, but we've seen some wild prices, particularly in Permian energy royalties um, at, you know, implied yields that you would never think would happen. But again, imagine if somebody's swapping out of another type of property on a like for like exchange, and then you have the depletion, which is a tax shield. So if you have cash flow coming from somewhere else, the depletion allowance on those royalties. So there's really attractive tax attributes in the private market to where we've seen some numbers in private markets that just don't make sense relative to public comps. Yeah. Where not too long ago, public comps traded at a premium because there's so much better liquidity. I and mean, you could be stuck holding a, a private royalty for you know a really long period of time if, uh, if people aren't convinced in kind of the operator profile or growth. Yeah. Now I'd be fascinated if there's anybody listening or, you know, James, if you know anybody that's, that runs a fund that's doing these, these types of private royalties, whether in PMs or energy, cause that's, I mean, I would, I would love to learn more about that and get somebody on to really discuss how they, how they attack the, the private markets. Um, well, this is, I mean, this has been a great conversation. It's, uh, you know, your second time coming on the podcast and, I really think people are going to enjoy this one. I learned a lot. Again, it's top of mind. I've been studying these royalty businesses. Um, they are fascinating, high quality businesses that if people are kind of scared or apprehensive to dive into, whether it's precious metals or copper, um, and you know they don't want to buy miners, they don't want to buy explorers, I think royalties are a great way to dip your feet and to get into the industry and to and to and to find a good business that allows you to gain exposure to this. Um, you know, if you want after after doing you know your your own work. But um, where can people go to find out more about you, James? I know you're doing cool stuff at Horizon Kinetics. So where can where can they go to find out more? Sure. So uh, you can just go to our website, horizonkinetics.com. Um, on there, under our what's new or 
research tabs, we have that royalty white white paper that you are referencing. Um, they just it's it's password protected, so they just ask that you kind of reach out to somebody at Horizon to get the info. Um, happy to put you in touch with somebody, or you can just kind of ping our general line, and somebody will get you that password. Um, you know, we're not that active on Twitter, but Horizon has a handle, and we actually do say some interesting stuff. We put out things that we call our daily musings. They're not every day, but we highlight you know discrepancies in you know anything from kind of copper to fertilizer to you know electrification objectives that you know, are thought provoking. And so I, I think between those two, you're off to a good start, but we're really generous and publish a lot and encourage people just to get started on our website. Awesome. Well, James, this has been a great conversation. I look forward to having you on again. Best of luck at Horizon Kinetics for the rest of the year and um, look forward to reading more of your research. Thanks for having me. Really been fun. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.